Welcome to Beef and Forage Roundup, on-farm research and demonstration with host Chantal McRae. This podcast is a production of Manitoba Beef and Forage Initiatives, created to share information with farmers, producers, and agriculture enthusiasts to showcase the important work that is happening at MBFI. Our podcasts drop on the first and third Wednesdays of each month. We will be sharing information through interviews with General Manager Mary Jane Orr, project leads for various projects, MBFI's team members, speakers from our extension events, industry leaders, and industry suppliers. This podcast will dig deep into on-farm research and field testing practices related to beef cattle and forage production and efficiency and sustainability of practice in the agricultural industry in Manitoba. We will be sharing information on upcoming training and workshops, field and farm demonstration tours, education materials, and events at MBFI as well as producer profiles from around the province and information on their trials, challenges, innovation, and results. We encourage you to browse our social media accounts and website for links to more information on projects, upcoming events, and important deadlines. Information on our social accounts and website can be found following the show and in the show notes. As always, we encourage you to email us if you have feedback, questions, or topic suggestions for the show at information at mbfi.ca. Today, I have the pleasure of sitting down to chat with Steve Kenyon. Steve and his wife, Amber, own and manage Greener Pastures Ranching Limited, where their main operation is custom grazing on leased land using intensive grazing management near Busby, Alberta. Steve, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I'm doing good. Thank you so much for having me on here. I appreciate the opportunity to share the good word, I guess. I'm sure that many of our listeners are quite familiar with you, but for those who are not, can you tell us about Greener Pastures Ranching? and how you started grazing the way that you do. Yeah, you bet. Yeah, Greener Pastures Ranching, we started, I think I moved up this way in about 1999. And then in 2001, 2002 is when I started the company. I had a herd of cattle back then, and I actually attended a ranching for profit course and started understanding my numbers and realized that my cows were actually losing money. And the little bit of custom grazing that I was doing at the time was making money. And it just, it didn't make sense to me. But when the numbers were right in front of you, we made a decision and I I jumped into custom grazing. The advantage I had back then is that after the drought of 202 in BSE was that a lot of land was available. So I started picking up land, renting it or leasing it and grew the business fairly rapidly back then. And it's just made sense ever since. So we've stuck with it. About how many acres would you say that you graze on? I believe last year we were just under 3,500 acres. We ran about uh, 1,400 yearlings last year. And I was reading on your website when I was preparing and I was intrigued by your mention of pigs in your grazing system. So do you have pigs as well as other livestock and how do you fit them in with your grazing? Yeah, the picker, picker, piggers. Uh, they're, they're, they're the funnest part of my operation, actually. We've been doing pasture pigs for a number of years now. And the reason we started it is, I mean, I just like bacon and, and I wanted some <laughs> natural, you know, home-raised, organic, whatever you want to call it, good quality bacon and pork chops and everything else. But when, you know, you're going to raise some for yourself, you might as well make it worthwhile and do enough to, you know, make it worth the labor and equipment. So we started, I think the first year with eight, and then we went to 15. And then I think we were up to 50 at one time. We've backed down a little bit now because uh, we had a little bit of a a blip in our economy here in Alberta a couple of years ago, and we ended up getting stuck with about 20 we couldn't sell. Then we backed down a little bit. I think we're going to 
probably have 35 to 40 this year. Yeah, we just buy them in, as wieners in the, in the springtime, and then we graze them all summer. They do get a supplemental grain, oats, barley, and peas, uh, and we butcher them in the fall. And most of them we sell as halves and holes in the fall, but sometimes we have some extras in the freezer that we can sell as pork packages, we call it, uh, $100 packs that we sell in the wintertime. So. Do the pigs graze alongside your cows, or are they grazing at a separate location? They are separate from the cows, but the cows come in and graze some of their land. The, the way that works is the, the pigs can't keep up to the grass, so it'll all get mature on them. So once or twice throughout the summer, the cows will come in or steers or whatever I have over there, and they knock down a portion of the pig paddock, and then that allows it to regrow. And this way, the, the pasture pigs actually have like the best of the best all summer long. They always have very high quality grass. Are you thinking of adding any other livestock species to the farm? Well, this year I've got a new manager and he brought in a, a flock of sheep. So we're, I'm learning a little bit about sheep now. I've ha- I had a few years ago, but nothing, nothing to speak of. But uh, right now he's lambing out and I'm learning from him. So I'm sorry to say, but we have a bottle baby in our house right now too. Um, <laughs> my, my wife's a little bit of a softie on that. So. so we had originally scheduled this recording for before the workshop that was last week. But I'm actually really happy that it didn't happen, that we could record it before, because I was able to sit in on the session that you gave and took a whole bunch of notes. And then I came home and completely rewrote all of my questions. And I feel like we're going to have a much better conversation just because of some of those aspects that I was able to take from that. So one of my favorite quotes from your workshop, you said, we need to do good, not just look good. Can you share how you relate this to your grazing practices and the importance in following through on this philosophy? I get frustrated in our industry a little bit because everybody's just trying to look good. Mm -hmm. And I I go to industry events and conferences and different organizations and, and everybody's just trying to look good, right? We've got to market it. So they, they look at emissions, right? I mean, that's what the, you know, the whole world's focused on emissions right now. And I disagree with that in agriculture, especially because we have the, it's a math equation, right? You want to get net zero carbon. It's math. You have to sequester more than you emit, but everybody's just focused on one side of that equation, the emissions. So they'll measure something and, and, and figure out that they're emitting less, and then they'll brag about that. But in the process to do whatever it is they did, they probably expelled more carbon than they're saving. Um, my example of that is always if you wanted to feed seaweed to the cattle in the feedlot so that they you know emit less carbon when they burp and, and fart. So okay, you can measure how much less they emit, but in the end, how much carbon did you expel to harvest that seaweed and truck it from the coast into Manitoba, Mm -hmm. right? Like it's a net. And that's so frustrating to me is people are always just focusing on the, uh, you know, we're saving on emissions when our true ability in agriculture is to sequester carbon. That leads us into my next question. And It's just that, that agriculture often seems to have a very negative focus and there seems to be lots of negative attention around egg when it comes to the impacts of the industry on the environment. And so you had said in the workshop that agriculture is the only industry on the planet that has the ability to sequester more long-term stable carbon than it emits. Can you give us a brief overview of how the egg industry can do this and what management practices are needed to make that shift? Yeah, I mean, that goes along with the emphasis on the carbon sequestration. The reason that agriculture is the only industry that can do that is because we have the ability to sequester carbon. I mean, think of the airline industry or the automotive industry. 
all these industries are aiming at being carbon neutral by 2030 or 2050 or whatever their target date is. That's impossible, right? How could they become carbon neutral when all they do is emit, right? They, they cannot possibly sequester anything. They don't have the ability. Whereas in agriculture, we do. The plants can take carbon out of the air through photosynthesis. That photosynthesis turns uh, the carbon into glucose. That sugar is then emitted through the, down to the root systems and pushed out through the roots into the soil. And that's called exudation. And from this point, now we need soil biology to convert that sugar into a long-term stable form of carbon. One of the critters that do this, for example, is uh, uh, mycorrhizae fungi, and they turn it into glomalin. And it's the sticky glue that's, you know, glues all those silt, sand, and clay together and forms good aggregates. But we're forming this long-term stable carbon in the, in the soil. Now, the only other industry that has the ability to sequester carbon would be the forestry industry. But it's not a long-term stable, right? I mean, it takes years and years to build that carbon into a forest, and it can be released very rapidly in a forest fire, right? It, it can just be gone. So in our grasslands or in our soil, if a fire comes across the top, that's fine. It can burn off that carbon. That stuff's going to get recycled into the atmosphere anyway. But that stable carbon in the soil, that's where we can hold on to it. And, and that's our ability in agriculture. We have that ability, whereas other industries don't. So my challenge to producers is, can you figure out on your farm how to sequester more carbon than you emit? And as an industry right now, we're not doing that because we're emitting way more than we're sequestering. Mm -hmm. And that comes down to, you know, how much sunlight are you capturing? How many days of the year are your plants actually green, active growing, and it's collecting sunlight? One of the terms that I've learned recently is albedo. Albedo is the difference between the amount of sunlight coming down versus how much is being reflected back. It was interesting when the University of Alberta came out to our ranch, they, they were testing for albedo and they had a drone which had a light sensor on the top of the drone and also one on the bottom of the drone. So what that's measuring is how much sunlight is being absorbed, which is really interesting. So that sunlight comes down. If it hits green living plant material, it can be absorbed through the chloroplast of the plant, right? We're collecting it. If it hits anything else, the soil, dirt, you know, your pickup truck or concrete, it gets reflected back. We want to be collecting as much of that as possible. I had a phrase here the other day at a, at a workshop. I said that sunlight travels 90 million miles to get here. Don't waste it in the last six inches, right? We want to <laughs> hold on to it in that six inches of grass that you need to put there as a producer. Yeah, don't let it reflect back. When we're talking about trying to keep those leaves available to capture that sunlight for as long as possible, there seems to also be the emerging trend of trying to integrate livestock onto agricultural land, which when you pair the two together and are able to use grazing practices on agricultural land, what impacts would you say that those animals can have on the land and how does that benefit soil health in those areas? Yes, uh, animal impact is so important. Our industry has been going away from that for a long time, and it's, it's actually very sad. I remember a couple summers ago, I was driving through southern Alberta, feedlot alley area, right? Very, very dry land, flat land, not a fence in sight, right? All the, all the land was no, no trees, flat, no fences, straight grain land, but I could smell the stench of the feedlot that I couldn't even see. Okay, it, it just blew me away that how did we go so wrong, mm -hmm. right? It is so important to have those animals on the land and all the fences are taken out. The reason those animals are so important, there's two basic, well, there's lots of, lots of benefits, but two benefits to that actual animal impact on the land. 
One is the physical animal impact. Now that's the stimulation on the soil by the animal's hooves. The hooves can break capped soil and help, you know, repair the water cycle and allow water to infiltrate through a capped soil. Uh, It can cause seed to soil contact, right? That little stimulation from the hoof can create a new seedling. And it can also also help with recycling the, the nutrients that's there. If you can actually push that material, the dead grass or dead crop, down to the soil where the biology is, then they can help recycle that nutrients and, and get it back into the soil. The other part of that is actually the biological impact from the animals. Biology is so important in the soil. And there are symbiotic relationships between the biology of the herbivore and the biology of the soil. Um, the manure and urine, okay, it has, they both have biology in it. And there's also food for biology. Okay, so it's, it's both going in there. The, the phlegm and the saliva, you know, as the animals are grazing, they're dropping biology onto the ground. There's even biology from their hair coat that falls onto the ground that really stimulates the soil biology. So without that biology going on there, we're not, you know, really kicking that soil into gear like we'd like to. Now, the physical impact we can get with a set of harrows, right? Everybody can run a tractor and a set of harrows across and do some of those physical impact things, but you're not going to get the biological impact without those animals out there. Spreading, you know, compost tea or compost on it, you'll get some of it, but still the animals are the most efficient, most cost-effective way to get that biology out there by far. It's sad in the industry that all the fences are taken out and nobody wants cattle on that grainland anymore, because I think that's one of the most important things that we could do. There's so much information on that. That could be a whole podcast, that one question, just of those animal impacts. We're going to shift gears. And my next question is actually about drought. So you spoke a little bit about drought in your presentation. And one of the main takeaways that I had, which I've heard before, is that the best time to plan for a drought is on your best year. Can you share what you mean by this and how our listeners could start planning for a drought situation long before it ever occurs? I'm going to give credit to this to one of my greatest mentors ever had. His name was Dennis Wabiser. Uh, he actually passed away a number of years ago, but he, he was am- amazing. Best grazer I ever knew. And I remember going, one of my first droughts I ever went through was the drought of 202. Uh, pretty severe, like everything browned off. I remember going back to Lloydminster. That's where my, uh, my family farm originated. And that's where Dennis Wabiser lived. And he was the best grazer I knew. Like he was amazing. He was awesome. And they went 14 months straight with zero precipitation. No snow, no rain, no nothing. It was brown. There was no grass left. It's not drought proofing your land. It's creating drought resilience. And I looked at him and I'm like, well, now what do we do? Because my land was in probably worse shape. So yeah, I looked at him. What do we do now? And he didn't skip a beat. Without hesitation, he said, now we plan for the next drought. That stuck with me for many, many years. So since 202, I've been planning for this drought, the drought of 2021. Um, We've had a few droughts in between, but not as severe. But by building up that soil every year, leaving residue, I kind of treat it like a bank account. Uh, On the good years, especially that really good year, leave more, leave more residue, build that soil armor to protect the top and to repair the water cycle. We want to prevent the runoff and prevent the evaporation by having good soil armor up there. And then with the exudation we were talking about by, you know, taking the carbon out of the air and putting it in the soil, that's creating that sponge and that good aggregation that's going to give us good pore space to hold on to water. In a drought, we'll be able to last a lot longer because we've been banking that for so many years. When the drought hits, it doesn't hit us as bad. The other big thing about 
drought management is actually that mycorrhizae fungi again. If you can have a healthy system of mycorrhizae fungi built up in your soil, when a drought hits, that fungus can reach, uh, we'll, we'll call it root hairs, but it's actually the fungus that's attached to the roots. Uh, it can extend the reach of your roots a thousand fold and it can gather water for you. So to be able to have that healthy soil life in there as well that you've been building, right? That takes years to build up. Then uh, boom, in a drought, your plants aren't, aren't affected nearly as bad. I had a really good example last year in 2021. I had two pastures, one that we've been managing for over 20 years and one that we'd only been managing for about three years. So we had a few really wet years ahead of us. And then we had one really dry year. And the pasture that I've been managing for over 20 years, we went through the drought of 2021. We had under four inches of rainfall. And normally we get uh, average is 15. So both these pastures were similar. So the long-term pasture that we've been managed for 20 years, we still had 94% of the average production. So basically that one was not in a drought, like 94%. That's pretty, pretty good. The one that we'd only been managing for three years, so we hadn't had very much time to build up that bank account, we had 62% of the average production. So drastically hit, affected by that drought. And that's just management. That's not rainfall. That was the same amount of rainfall. The pastures were very close together. It's just management that does that. So we need to manage for a drought long before we're in a drought. That management is so important. And it's coming up more and more in the conversation about how can we change our management in order to have those better practices to be more sustainable. There was so much more information that I picked up from listening to you speak at the grazing workshop, and we just don't have time to cover everything today. Um, the presentation that you had last week was a piece of the full workshop that you prepared for the Advanced Grazing Systems Mentorship Project. Can you tell our listeners about this project specifically, what they could expect to learn and what implication those practices could have on farms or ranches if they chose to be part of that project? Yes, you bet. I was actually really excited when this came out. Cedric from CFGA called me up one time and said, yeah, we're thinking that we might get some funding for another mentorship program because back in about 202 to 209 in there, we actually had our first sustainable grazing mentorship program in Canada. And I was kind of a part of that when I first got started and, and helped to build it. And it kind of fizzled out. I think they just kind of ran out of money back then. But then this came up and Cedric asked me if I'd like to try and help build it. So I said, you bet. So the Farmers for Climate Solutions actually got the funding from the federal government. And they're actually funding or building three different mentorship programs. One is through CFGA, and that is the grazing mentorship program across Canada. Another one is the mentorship program for cover crops. And the third one is for nitrogen management. Okay, so there's these three separate mentorship programs that they're building. And I was actually pretty excited about that because that's what the federal government came up with as the three top priorities for carbon. And that really excited me because they hit this one out of the park, I think. Those are extremely important uh, aspects of you know, management on the farms and ranches. So they have asked me to build this mentorship program. So I've put together six modules and then a seventh one for, for training mentors. And basically what it's kind of turned into is a, an online grazing course that you can take. And then you can follow that up with hiring a mentor. You pay a portion of it, but then the mentor gets some funding through the program. And you can actually get a mentor right out on your farm to help you plan and set this up, right? That's a valuable tool. That's so important. Yeah. One of the hardest things to do as a, a new producer trying to get into this is figuring out where to pound the first post, mm -hmm. right? Like 
where do we put the watering site and like getting started once you're started then it's like okay we're doing this and boom they pound in a bunch of fences and they're up and running but to get them actually to pound that first post is the hardest part so having an experienced mentor who has done this for years to to go out and say yep i like your plan you know this is this is a good plan let's do it and let's pound the post right here this is the first one that's amazing how how that gives you confidence and get out there and and get the job done so that's so valuable. Who is eligible to enroll in the program and where could they go to find out more information? Any producers are eligible. It's kind of a two-part thing. So the mentorship itself is through Farmers for Climate Solutions, but there's also some funding coming with it from the federal government as well. And it's called OFCAF, uh, On-Farm Climate Action Fund. And then there's actually going to be money for capital assets to improve your grazing or improve your cover crops or improve your nitrogen management. So there's two parts to it. If you were to run through the program, get a grazing plan, I've kind of designed it so that at the end of every module, you answer a few questions. So when you're done all the modules, you can pull out all those questions that you've already answered. You've already built your grazing plan, which is also your application for the OFCAF funding. So I've tried to make it very user-friendly and all the work you're doing is actually going, you know, going forward and getting you your grazing plan. You don't have to go through the mentorship program, you know, to put in an application for the OFCAF. But if you're not understanding it, well, definitely the mentorship program can get your grazing plan adequate enough so that you would be accepted in the OFCAF program. If there's listeners who are interested in becoming mentors, is there prerequisites for that if they wanted to help in that way? Yeah, the, the provinces. So this is a federal program, but we're including the provinces individually because every, you know, every area is different. So the provinces right now, they're choosing who the mentors would be. Um, And we'll we'll keep adding mentors as this builds, right? We're starting with a few right now, and then hopefully we'll build on it and get a few more. So by all means, if someone out there thinks that they could be a mentor, awesome. I'm happy to have you on board. If you signed up on the CFGA website, I believe if you look under advanced grazing systems on the website, and I'm sure we can include that on the podcast at the end, then there's a spot to register under that. And you can throw your name in there and then they'll keep you up to date on any information coming out, including, you know, courses, times or uh, events. And if the mentorship training sessions are when and where they are too. Perfect. What additional resources do you have, or would you recommend for listeners who are wanting to find out more about rotational grazing practices? Oh, there's tons of schools out there on uh, advanced grazing or, I mean, that's what, that's why we called it advanced grazing systems is because I'm trying to include all of the different types or schools of thought of grazing out there. So uh, where have I learned in the past? Holistic management, ranching for profit, management intensive grazing. So there's lots of different schools on that, just to name a few of them. And then there's all sorts of individuals and, and scientists that I've listened to over the past that have some great information and understanding of soils and grass and and livestock. So I would just say uh, most of my education in the last 20 years has come from conferences and seminars from a whole bunch of people. I mean, I could list off names here on and on and on. Besides the mentorship project, what schools or professional development events are you hosting or speaking at in the near future? Most of them are done because the schools and seminar season's over. We're just getting into the grazing season. That being said, I do have a few that are over the summer. I'm not going to have the exact dates on them, but I know I'm going to Nebraska. There's a conference in early August. We're also, I'm going down to uh, Polyface Farms with Joel Salatin. We're doing a, a session right at his ranch. That'll be the end of August, I believe. 
And then there's a few more that are booked into next season already, but that's about it. Oh, there's always the, there's one or two pasture walks in the summer here. We usually do one at Greener Pastures here, and we'll usually do one up at the Gateway Research Organization as well. That's just north of us here. So we kind of work together on those ones. If listeners are wanting to find more information from you about your grazing practices or about Greener Pastures, where can they go to contact you or to find more information? My most active spot is actually Facebook. You can look under Greener Pastures Ranching. We're starting to put some videos on our YouTube page as well at Greener Pastures Ranching. And if they want to contact me, emails, skenyon at greenerpasturesranching.com. Perfect. And we'll include that in the show notes too, for anybody that's wanting to find that. I think that's kind of the end of my formal questions. Is there anything else that you wanted to add before we wrapped up today? Uh, no, not really. Uh, thank you so much for having me on here. I really appreciate just getting the getting the word out and hopefully this can reach a lot of people. We do have a whole series of podcasts too through the Gateway Research Organization. It wasn't originally a podcast, so we're not trying to compete with podcasts, but it's we call it Wednesday Night Networking. And it was just a place for people to get together and network because during COVID, the networking from all the conferences was missing. Mm-hmm. So we created that as just a you know, real down to earth, friendly place. There was no presentations. There's no slides. We'd have a a special guest every night and we just recorded them and saved them as a podcast just because people were actually mad when we didn't record them at the beginning. So we (laughs) thought we better start recording them. So you can get those two at, uh, under the Gateway Research Organization at Podbean. Uh, It's a podcast one. So that's, there's tons of information. We've been, we were doing that for two winters now. So lots of special guests and lots of topics we went through. Great. Thank you, Steve, so much for joining me today. I am sure that we'll be talking again at some point in the future. There's just so much more information. Hope you have a great spring season and we will talk to you again soon. Thank you so much. Thank you very much and God bless. The Start Your Grazing Plan workshop was co-hosted by Manitoba Egg and MBFI. We would like to thank Manitoba Egg for their partnership for this event. There are three additional extension events planned so far for this spring and summer. Don't miss the June 1st Fence and Water Solutions Workshop, July 6th Health Check Your Pastures and Soils, and August 3rd Diversify Your Grazing. Visit mbfi.ca or any of our social media accounts at mbbeefandforage for more information and to register today. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Beef and Forage Roundup. For more information on the on-farm projects or upcoming extension events, please visit us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at MB Beef and Forage. For full project reports and more information about MBFI, please visit our website, mbfi.ca. If you have feedback on the show, questions about content, are interested in becoming a project supporter, or want to submit a proposal for a research project topic, please email information at mbfi.ca. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe to ensure you don't miss an upcoming episode. We've got lots to share.